Today we are on our 12th hymn in our summer summer sermon series. I knew that that was a tongue twister was going to get me when I wrote that out in my notes this morning. Uh, the, the, the 12th hymn in our summer sermon series, 15 hymns, every Christian should know. And the hymn that we're looking at this morning, we just sang, and the puppets made reference to it this morning, is the hymn Almost Persuaded by Philip Paul Bliss. He wrote this hymn, Almost Persuaded, and it's based on the story of Paul's conversation with a King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. Here's a, a one particular artist's rendering of that event. And Paul um, stood there and gave his testimony, shared the story of how he became a Christian. And this song that we sang reminds us of a very simple truth, that there are many who hear the gospel and know it is true, and yet they refuse to humble themselves, refuse to seek forgiveness from the Savior. And while here at Emmanuel Baptist Church we don't have a what you might call a come-forward invitation. Some people might call, would call it an altar call. We don't do that here. We need to understand that every time the gospel is preached, there is an invitation. An invitation to turn from our sin to the living God and become followers of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, many times, I fear that we respond like Governor Festus, or King Agrippa, and turn away from the gospel truth out of fear or out of the hardness of our hearts. So it's important for us to sing hymns like Almost Persuaded, for us to understand that any response other than repentance and faith is a response of a fool and a rebel. It's not the reasoned response of a fair-minded skeptic, even though some people would like us to believe that that's how they respond. It's not enough for us to consider the claims of the gospel without being persuaded to become a Christian. The hymn, that last verse, says it very poetically and very powerfully. Almost cannot avail. Almost is but to fail. Sad, sad, that bitter wail. Almost but lost. The Apostle Paul was a prisoner. He'd been arrested and he'd been charged on false pretense because the Jews hoped to ambush him and have him killed. When he found out that they were going to, to murder him, he appealed his case before Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, Paul was guaranteed the right to be tried by Caesar. And so Paul remained incarcerated in the beautiful city of Caesarea. I've been there. Uh, it's beautiful. Uh, right on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. I've stood there in the palace. Well, it's ruins now, but you can stand there in the palace and look out over the, the sea. And even see you can even see the, uh, the just as a side thing, but the, the swimming pool 
They actually had a swimming pool that was fed by salt water from the sea. It's really cool, and it's still there. I mean, you probably wouldn't want to swim in it. It's Like I said, it's ruins. But it's, it's right there on the sea, and the water from the sea, the tide ebbs and flows, and it washes in and out, and, and you get every day renewed uh, salt water in the, in the swimming pool. It's kind of a fascinating thing. Beautiful place. And Paul was there, I'm sure, though, that uh, he wasn't enjoying an ocean view, the warmth of the sun on his face, strolling along the beach. He was a prisoner. And Festus was the governor, and he was responsible for sending Paul to Caesar. And as the governor, he had to write charges and send them along with Paul so that when Caesar received the prisoner, he'd also receive an explanation as to why this particular man was sent to him. Festus, needing to write out those charges, wanted to understand exactly why Paul was in prison. And so the very last verse, uh, the very last verses of chapter 25, Festus confessed this to Agrippa. He said, I have nothing certain to write, my Lord, concerning him. Therefore, I've brought him out before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not specify the charges against him. So here Paul is, imprisoned, Festus, the governor, is in charge of Paul's incarceration. And Festus doesn't even know why Paul is being held. Nor does he know why Paul is going to stand trial. But, being a good bureaucrat, he wants to cover himself. So he wants to make sure that he has some understanding of the situation when he sends him along. And that's why the events of Acts chapter 26 happen. Paul is brought before King Agrippa and the governor Festus, along with their entire entourage, Agrippa's sister, Bernice, who was there with them, and all of their entourage. Paul stood before them, and he was given the opportunity in chapter 26 to speak for himself, to defend himself. Himself. Now, we are not going to look at all of Acts chapter 26 this morning. You can imagine how long it would take me to go through all of Acts chapter 26, all 32 verses. But if you'd like a little bit more of that background of the chapter, back there on the table next to Albert, there's a, a copy of the Growing Deeper in, uh, Going Deeper in the Word, and uh, I go through a little bit more of the background of the chapter in that. So if you want to take a copy of that with you when you go, that will give you a little bit more of an idea of some of the background of this situation and exactly what Paul says. I'd like to skip forward a little bit because Paul shares his story. You see, Paul's not really concerned with defending himself in, the, in a legal sense here. He's not trying to get his case dismissed, right? Because if Paul gets his case dismissed and gets released, the Jews are prepared to kill him. They have, they've been planning an ambush. So Paul understands that the safest place he can be right now is in prison and be transported to Rome to Caesar and hope that as he stands before Caesar, he'll get his day of justice. But Paul here is not interested in defending himself. What he is doing is he is preaching the gospel. That's what motivated Paul. That's what consumed Paul. That's what his focus is 
here in Acts chapter 26. And so he shares his testimony. And then he explains the nature of the gospel. And finally, he pleads with Festus and Agrippa to believe. So I'd like to read here the first little bit. We're going to start in verse 19. And uh, let's see, I might have some of the kids help me read a little bit here. Um, okay, Let's start right here. Michael, would you start reading there for us? Read verse 19. Agrippa? Damascus. Read the next one too, bud. Region. Fitting. Okay. Grace, can you read this one? Seized. Obtained. that the Christ would suffer that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles Paul here in this first section that I want to look at he explains especially really I want to focus our attention in verse 20 the nature of the gospel The nature of the gospel. This is the gospel that Paul preached in Damascus from the very beginning after he'd become a follower of Jesus Christ. And for more than 25 years, Paul had been preaching this same message to the Jew and the Gentile alike. He'd been traveling all across Asia and Greece preaching. Today... The gospel that we preach is the same is the same message that Paul experienced firsthand and that he preached with great power to men and women. This message has never changed. And at its core, it consists of three basic elements. And Paul lays out these three for us in verse 20. The three basic elements of the gospel. The first one, look there in verse 20. He says that he preached, he was faithful or obedient to the Lord, declaring to those in Damascus and Jerusalem 
that they should repent. That they should repent. The first, uh, the first of the three elements of the gospel that Paul points out here is the element of repentance. The Greek word for repentance is the word metanoia. And it essentially means to make a 180 degree turn. A complete change in direction going the other way. In the context of the gospel, repentance means to change one's heart and mind concerning sin. To reject sin. To, follow, to, to refuse to follow it any longer. To see sin for the corruption and the wickedness that it really is. And to turn away from it. But the thing is, this idea of repentance, of turning away from sin, it's not so simple as we, we, you know, the expression we use is turning over a new leaf. You know, you hear people talk about that. Hey, you know what? I'm kind of tired of the way things are going. I think I'm going to change things up. I want to turn over a new leaf. I don't want to do that stuff anymore. And that's the way that we kind of commonly look at this. But biblical repentance is far more than that. We understand that reinventing ourselves, turning over a new leaf, is not a sufficient response to sin. Okay, turning over a new leaf is fine when it comes to, you know, wanting to start a new diet or something like that or an exercise program. But when we're talking about a response to sin, this is something far more serious and far more dangerous. In fact, there's a verse of Scripture that I think really applies appropriately here. Paul talks about it in Galatians 4 and verse 3. He says that we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. The Bible talks about sin in terms of slavery, bondage. We're not talking about something in which we can just one day decide we're no longer going to do this. I don't want to be that way anymore. I'm just not going to sin anymore. I'm just going to turn over a new leaf and just reform myself and I'll be okay. That's not the way the scripture talks about sin. It says that we are in bondage to it. Enslaved to it. Unable to free ourselves from the power of sin no matter how hard we try. The first element, the element of repentance, turning away from sin. The second element of the gospel that helps us to understand this so that we don't get this confused and think it's just turning over a new leaf. The second element that Paul mentions there in verse 20 is turning to God. He says that he preached, declared that they should repent and turn to God. It's really maybe the other side of the coin here. Okay? The first two elements, repentance and turning to God, you know, opposite sides of the same coin here. Paul shared a testimony. This is interesting too, because when Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians 1, he said this, how you turn, he's talking about their testimony, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Notice there's both the turning away from idols, false worship, sin, 
and a turning to God. And in the, the case of the Thessalonians, Paul is talking to them, it, this is a simultaneous thing. They turned away from their sin and they turned to God. That's repentance and turning to God. That's what Paul's talking about here in Acts chapter 26 and verse 20. Turning to God, what does that mean? It means submitting to his righteous judgment. You know, God has declared that every man and every woman is condemned in sin. And if we're going to turn to God, it means that we acknowledge that he has judged rightly. That when he says we are condemned and we're sinners, that he is right for saying that. And we admit, yes, Lord, you are right. I am a sinner. I am guilty. I deserve condemnation and judgment. And in response, we cast ourselves at his mercy. We come to the Lord and we say, Lord, you are right when you judge me to be a sinner. But please, have mercy on me. Forgive me. Do not destroy me in judgment like I deserve. This is what it means to turn to God. It's only by turning to God that we can have our sins forgiven and we can be set free from the bondage that Paul talked about to sin. The gospel here, then, according to what Paul, how Paul explains it, the gospel includes both turning our backs on sin and turning to the Lord in faith to trust Him for mercy and for freedom. But there's one more element of the gospel here that Paul points to, and this one is really key. This is really important. Let's see, We repent. We turn away from our sin. We turn to trust God. But there's a third one. Paul says, works befitting repentance. He, he preached to them, declared to them that they should do works befitting repentance. Now this is a really sticky point here. I'm sure you've heard uh, the saying, your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Anybody ever heard that before? Jim? Nobody else. You guys all need to get out more. Good night. <laughs> okay. Your walk, or rather your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. What does that mean? Actions speak louder than words. You know that. Actions mean something. Why? Because the actions reveal what we believe to be true. It's easy for people to say that they believe in God. It's easy for people to say that they have faith in Jesus Christ. But those are just words. It's far more important for us to live out the truth of those words by our actions. Now notice what I said. I didn't say the actions are more important than the words. I didn't say that the third thing, the works befitting repentance, are more important than repentance and turning to God. No, we have to, we have to turn from sin. We have to trust in God. 
That must be true. We have to speak those words. We must confess the truth. Romans 10 and verses 9 and 10. We must confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus. So the confession, the words are important, but they have to be accompanied by works befitting repentance. There's a lot of examples in Scripture, but there's one that I thought of this week that I want you to turn to. Um, Keep your finger here. We're going to come back to Acts 26, and we'll get there. But Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. You may be familiar with this chapter. Early, early, early on in the book of Genesis, we have Adam and Eve, and they have two sons. Cain and Abel. And in Genesis 4, and we're going to begin in verse 3, we learn something about Cain and Abel. It says here, And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Now, I don't want to get into the, tech, the details of this passage and, and consider the question of why they were rejected and all that stuff. I, don't worry about that right now. Just set all that aside. What I want to look at is Cain's response and the conversation he has with the Lord. Look at the next verse, verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Cain, at this point in his life, had chosen a path of rebellion against the Lord. You see, long before Cain ever committed murder, there was a path of sin that Cain chose. A path of rebellion against the Lord. It's exemplified by his rejected worship here. The Lord comes to Cain and has a conversation with him. And he warns Cain. He says, Cain, sin is lying in wait for you outside your door. Like a lion. It's like he's saying, you know, Cain, if you step foot outside your door right now, there's a lion waiting to pounce on you. So Cain, you better be very careful about what you do right now. Cain, this is a crucial moment. If you, going down the path you're going down, if you set one more foot out that door, that lion is waiting to pounce. Sin is waiting to pounce and jump all over you and take control. The Lord is warning Cain here. The Lord is trying to persuade Cain to turn back and to choose the right path. This is, this is in a sense, what the Gospel does to us. As we live as rebellious sinners and the Gospel confronts us and says, listen, you're on the wrong path. If you take one more step It's like a lion waiting to pounce on you. And the gospel confronts us and says, go back to where you got off the path and make the right turn. The Lord here is is warning Cain. But look at what happens. 
Beginning in verse 8, Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, so now you are cursed from the earth which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. Now what does this have to do with works befitting repentance? The Lord said to Cain, Cain, if you do right, will you not be accepted? But if you do wrong, Cain, if you persist in rebellion and doing wrong, Cain, sin is lying at your door waiting to pounce. Cain's actions, his next actions, very clearly reveal where Cain's heart was. Cain's heart was not a heart of repentance and turning to God. Even as much as Cain might have said those things, you think about it, Cain brought a sacrifice to the Lord. He said the right things. If you wanted to, if we could bring Cain forward in time, he's sitting in church. He's dressed up for Sunday. He's singing the songs, put some money in the offering plate. He's doing all of those right things and worshiping God and saying that he is turning to God and saying that he believes these things. But his actions, his actions prove something far different, right? And Paul says, listen, the gospel is simple. It means turning away from sin. It means turning and trusting in God and then doing work that befits repentance. Living a life of obedience. Submitting to the Lord and following Him. Doing the works that show the repentance is genuine. Because our actions speak louder than our words. And so Paul, in preaching before Agrippa and Festus, he highlights here in verse 20 exactly what the gospel is, the nature of the gospel. And then he's going to turn his attention to these men a little more directly. You know, a few years ago, I used to drive a concrete mixer truck out in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. And I have a lot of unique experiences and uh, stories that I, things that I encountered while I was driving a, a truck. But most of the unique experiences I have were brought about by my own um, poor judgment, <laughs> for, for lack of a better um, word. There's one particular that I remember, though. Um, I was taking a load of concrete, uh, nearly 11 yards, which is... I don't know what they go for now, but at the time, it was, that was just under $2,000 uh, worth of concrete in my truck. And I was taking it to deliver to a job site. Only I missed, uh, I missed a turn in the directions. And I didn't realize that I had missed the turn right away. But as I went a little bit further down the road, I, I kind of thought in the back of my mind that I must have missed the turn because I wasn't finding what I was supposed to be finding. But I didn't really know where I was. I was just following the directions, and I, I just decided that I didn't want to admit that I was lost, and so I kept going. 
on the road that I was on, thinking, well, maybe it's just a little bit further down. Maybe it's just that the next intersection is the one I'm looking for. I'll just keep going a little bit further. And uh, it wasn't really until I found myself in downtown Philadelphia. And I, you think I'm kidding. I'm not. I found myself in downtown Philadelphia. I was about to cross the bridge to go into New Jersey. And then when I got there, it, at that point, I really could no longer deny that I had missed the turn, that I had not followed the directions and I had gotten off the way that I was supposed to go. I couldn't, I couldn't really hide what I had done at that point. And so what I did, I turned around and went back the way that I came. By the time I got back to, into range so that I could radio back to the office and realize how far I had come, um, my supervisor had guessed that I was lost. And he had already sent another truck to the job site. Um, and so all I could do was take the concrete back, back to the plant, and pour it out on the ground. It was a waste. It cost my employer nearly $2,000 in concrete. It cost them a couple hours of my time, as well as the costs of, of uh, operating the, the truck. It earned me the privilege of being made fun of by my fellow drivers. Um, the point is, I should have turned around as soon as I knew that I had gone the wrong way. If I had done that, there's a chance I still could have made it back to the job site in time, and I could have been used that concrete without having all that waste. My decision to persist in going the wrong way ended up being quite costly. And the same thing, I think, is what happened here in Acts chapter 26. Paul has has explained very clearly the nature of the gospel to Festus and Agrippa. And I'm going to go through these because we're running out of time. I'm going to go through these verses fairly quickly, and I'm just going to read them instead of having the kids read them because I don't want to take the time for that um, this morning. And so beginning there in verse 24, or continuing in verse 24, Now as he had thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. It's interesting here. This is the need for a response. You see, the gospel, as I said earlier, every time the gospel is preached, there is an invitation. It's inherent in the gospel itself. The gospel, when it is, when it is presented, calls for a response. But there are two responses we see in this chapter. The first one is Festus. Uh-oh. That's not what I wanted. Oh, well. Festus mocking the truth. That's the first response we see. Festus here mocking the truth. He says, Paul. He says, Paul, you're, you're beside yourself. You are out of your mind, Paul. You're insane. You've lost touch with reality. That's really what he was saying here. He, he viewed the claim of Jesus' resurrection that Paul has made to be madness. And he said that Paul was so caught up in reading and studying the Scriptures that he lost touch with reality. You ever had anybody, <laughs> ever had anybody accuse you of, of that? You believe, you believe the Bible? You believe God's Word? You, you believe that that's true? Man, you're really out there. You've really lost it. You believe this book is true? Are you kidding me? 
I mean, that's the way that people respond sometimes. It's the way Festus responds here. There's a lot of people who like to laugh and mock the claims of Christianity the way that Festus did, saying that it's nothing more than blind faith in a fairy tale. When we confront them with their sin and confront them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, they avoid making a decision by saying the entire thing is irrational. It's unreasonable. And that's what Festus is saying to Paul here. Paul, you're... Your whole argument, this whole thing is just, it's not logical. It doesn't make sense, Paul. It's myth and fairy tale. (coughs) 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 But I want you to see Paul's response to Festus. It's very important. Because those of us who believe the gospel, we're not out of touch with reality. We don't believe in fairy tales. The gospel is true. It's reasonable. It stands up to even the closest scrutiny. You see, Paul says to Festus in verse 25, I'm not, I'm not mad. I'm, I'm not out of touch, Festus. In fact, he says, the words that I speak are truth. They're reason. Festus, listen to how I'm speaking, Festus. I'm not babbling on in nonsense. I'm not, I'm not sputtering about in just, in just gibberish. I'm not insane. I'm speaking carefully and clearly. And what I'm speaking is true. And Paul's response to Festus is simply to declare that the gospel is true. He even appeals to Agrippa himself here. I think it's interesting. Um, in verse 26, he even appeals to Agrippa, turns his attention to Agrippa. He, he, he knew that Agrippa grew up in Judea. There's no doubt that he had heard of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Paul was not asking Festus or Agrippa to accept the gospel on blind faith. He was actually here in verse 26 inviting Agrippa to disprove Jesus' resurrection if he could. Disprove it, Agrippa. Then you can set this aside. If you don't want to believe it, just prove it wrong. But he says, Agrippa, you know that this is true. His response here to Festus skepticism is to appeal to his own reasonable presentation of the gospel and invite investigation into the truth claims of the gospel. I think this is significant that Paul responds this way. It gives us an example, a model to follow, if you will. How can we respond to a skeptic? Well, listen, let's appeal to the rational and reasonable nature of our faith. And let's invite them to investigate. Hey, you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Listen, I would invite you to do all the research you can. Go back to as many of the original sources as you can. Trace that back historically and search for evidence. I, I, I dare you to investigate the truth claims of Scripture all you want. Because what will happen when you do is you will find that they are absolutely true. You will find 
no flaw in it. You can try. Many people have. Many people have. And many skeptics who have tried to debunk Jesus' resurrection and the claims of the gospel have been converted. Because the harder they try to study it and find the flaw, the more convinced they are that it's true. And so Festus Festus mocks the gospel. And Paul simply appeals to Festus's reason. But then Agrippa, and Agrippa really is the key here. He's really the focal point. Agrippa claimed to be a Jewish king. He was the son of Herod. His full name here is Herod Agrippa. And so he was Jewish by his heritage. He claimed to believe the Old Testament scriptures. He claimed to believe that Moses and the prophets were true. And so Paul appeals to Agrippa, not so much on the basis of of his intellectual um, pursuit here, but he appeals to Agrippa to accept the conclusion of the scriptures, of the word of God. Notice how he says it here in verse 26. He says, For the king before whom I speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention. Since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. I love that. By the way, I I just love the way Paul does that. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Agrippa, if you believe the prophets, the prophets tell about Christ. The prophets predict that Christ would come and suffer and die and rise again. So Agrippa, if you believe the prophets, certainly you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. You see how how skillfully, how masterfully Paul works Agrippa back into a corner. Really. Because everything in Paul's argument points Agrippa to the one conclusion that's true. That Jesus Christ is the Savior. And I'm sure Agrippa saw where Paul was going. And he felt the pressure of being backed into a corner. And I can imagine, never being there myself, I can imagine if you were a king that you wouldn't really like it when someone backs you into a corner. Right? Okay. And you probably haven't you probably hadn't experienced that a whole lot, being a king, because most people probably wouldn't do that thing. But Paul's not afraid. Paul's not intimidated. And he walks Agrippa very carefully and logically and reasonably back into a corner where the only possible conclusion that Agrippa can come to is that Jesus is the Christ. This is why I said earlier that that. We're talking here about people who know, who hear the gospel and know that it's true. Because I have no doubt that Agrippa knew that the gospel was true as Paul preached it. You look at Agrippa's response in verse 28. Does Agrippa, does Agrippa contradict Paul? Does Agrippa throw up arguments to disprove the, the gospel? No. See, he doesn't even make a single argument against it. He doesn't even try to debunk the resurrection of Christ or the truth of the scriptures or anything else. 
See, Agrippa knew it was true. He didn't contradict anything Paul said. He doesn't deny that the scriptures pointed to the Messiah as crucifixion and resurrection. He doesn't even deny that Jesus is the Messiah. He didn't deny that the gospel was true. But when Paul confronted Agrippa with his own sin and his need of repentance, what did he do? He chose to ignore Paul and continue on his way. Kind of in the same way that Cain chose to ignore the warning from the Lord, continuing on his path of rebellion. Agrippa refused. He didn't want to allow the gospel to make an impact in his heart and his life. How often do we respond like Agrippa? How many times do we hear the gospel preached and yet we remain unmoved? At least we refuse to allow ourselves to be moved. Somewhere deep in our hearts we must know that we've heard the truth and yet we simply refuse to respond to what we know is true. Agrippa probably would never have admitted it, but Agrippa was convinced by Paul of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But instead of responding in the only reasonable way, which is to repent and turn to God and do works befitting repentance, he chose to shut down the conversation. This is what he does. Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. Paul, you think that in this brief conversation you can get me, a king, to humble myself before the Lord? To come down to the same level as you, a prisoner? No way. Good good argument, Paul. But no. That's how Agrippa dealt with it. Sadly, I think that's oftentimes how we deal with it. When the Word of God and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit is brought to bear on our hearts. Well, that's a good argument. I really can't poke any holes in it. I don't have a good defense, but close. I'm just not going to let that one get in. I'm just not going to let that one move me. I will not allow myself to be moved. And we reject what we know is true. Because we do not want to submit ourselves to the truth, and to the God of truth. We're out of time. I can't, I can't, uh... all I know is this, when, when, when we can look at it, you can look at it here, in the last three verses, verses 30 to 32, as soon as, as soon as, as Agrippa responded this way, and Paul pleaded with him one more time. Agrippa and Bernice stood up, signaling that the conversation was over, and they left. The whole entourage left. And as they're walking out, notice notice the conversation as they're walking out. The end of verse 31. This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Verse 32, Agrippa says to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Notice what their conversation turns to. Their conversation is not discussing the gospel and the truth and the conviction of their hearts that they're sinners in need of repentance. No, they've already brushed that aside. 
And so very quickly, they, ch- they changed the subject to the legal technicalities of Paul's situation. Because it's safe to talk about that. You don't have to feel the conviction. They can just brush it aside and pretend like it wasn't there at all. Go their merry way. Never allowing the truth of the gospel to penetrate their hearts. And I think we're more like them than we want to admit. And I'm not just talking this morning about those of you who come here every Sunday and hear the gospel, but refuse to admit that you're not even saved. I'm talking about the way that we so quickly rush out the door as soon as the service is over. Hardly taking any time to consider the gravity of the Word of God and how it applies to our lives. How quickly we can change gears from considering the most vital truths from the pages of Scripture. And we can very quickly and easily change the subject and talk about the events of the week, what's for dinner, some movie we just saw, what happened in the Packers family night last night or the Brewers game, don't mention it. Agrippa hid behind the the shortness of his encounter with Paul when he said, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. And I fear that we too may hide rather than allowing God's word to expose us for who we truly are. This morning, I plead with you. Three things. Repent. Turn to God. And bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. The hymn closes with those words, almost cannot avail. Almost is but to fail. Sad. Sad that bitter wail, almost but lost.